Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission is to connect the disconnected to a growing relationship with God. You can connect with God, and we can help. morning, Connect Church. All throughout the New Testament, Paul uses language of groaning, eagerly waiting to describe his life on this side of eternity. He lives in this constant state of looking toward heaven. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says it this way, we groan longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Then in Romans 8, he writes, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly, there it is again, for our adoption. Now the message paraphrases what Paul says this way, waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. The longer we wait, the larger we become, the more joyful our expectancy. Now he's using this word picture of a mother who's waiting to meet her child. And that's a pretty rich metaphor for me is today, my wife is just about 34 weeks pregnant. Her baby shower was yesterday. Now, as an aside, Paul and the person paraphrasing him, clearly they were never married because they're using the word large rather freely in this context. (laughs) But his point is right on. We're eager to meet our daughter. We're longing to see her. It's been five long years of miscarriage, grief, sadness, a lot of darkness that we've walked through. All things that you don't necessarily expect when you begin this journey to grow your family, despite what we read at the start of this epic series back in Genesis in the garden the fall, the reality of living in a fallen and sinful world. Even Eve is told to expect the pains of childbirth. So yes, we are eagerly waiting to see the light and the joy that will be our daughter. But if I'm honest, I can't say that even on my best days, I am longing and eager for heaven. I mean, yes, I'm I'm eager for everything in the world here to be set right. Things like death, darkness, depression, all gone. But heaven, I'm not so sure. So think about it with me now. Let's do a quick exercise in visualization. If you're open to this, close your eyes for just a second and call to mind one place that represents the most restful, breathtaking, magical place that you have ever been. So step back there, walk around for a second. What is it, what does it look like? Does it have a texture? What does it feel like around you, even inside of you? Does it have a sound? If you listen for a second, what does it sound like? What about a taste? Taste anything? Maybe some salty air? Would you like to go back there? Now, if you, if you open your eyes, here's the place that I go to in my mind. So this is Aaron and I on a little island in Resurrection Bay, Alaska. It's one of the most beautiful places that I have ever been. The landscape was stunning. It's this rugged display of sea and sky and mountains all meeting together. There was salmon, sea otter swimming all around us. I mean, it's the type of place that I would love to take our daughter back to. Now, that place that you had in your mind, if you had a choice just for today, you could either go back and relive those moments, or you could step into heaven, which would you choose? Now, aside from the instinct that most of us have to know that heaven is good, it's something that we should desire, for honest, a lot of us, we would choose to go back to the place that we know, a place that we've been that we can say with certainty is good because we've seen it, we've seen it clearly. Because for most of us, it's hard to truly desire and long for, like in Paul's language, a place that we've never been in a place that is abstract as heaven. 
it's somewhere else, it's sometime else, and we don't really have a clear vision for what to expect exactly. John Eldridge, in his book, Journey to Desire, puts it this way, Nearly every Christian I've spoken with has some idea that eternity is an unending church service, a never-ending sing-along in the sky. We've settled on an image of the a never-ending sing-along, one great hymn after another, forever and ever, amen, and our heart sinks. We think forever and ever, that's it, that's the good news, and then we sigh, and we feel guilty that we're not more spiritual, we lose heart, and then we turn once more to the present to find what type of life we can find. Now, there are, there are two other authors that I think have short stories that do a good job of painting a metaphor for this. So the first is by H.G. Wells. It was written in 1904. The story is called The Country of the Blind. And it's about a group of people who leave, live deep in this mountain valley, beautiful valley, but one day a pandemic comes and it leaves them all blind. They can't see anything. So as the generations go by, generation after generation, eventually there's nobody left to describe what to see, let alone the idea of what sight is. Living blind just becomes normal. People get used to it. And so they start to experience just a fraction of what it means to be human, the reality of the splendor all around us. And I like this story because this is us. We're essentially living blind to the reality of heaven that is all around us. Now, the second one is from C.S. Lewis in The Silver Chair, part of the Chronicles of Narnia. I love Lewis. We're gonna hear a lot, of, a lot more from Lewis today. But in his story, the queen of the underworld holds a group of kids hostage. They're underground. And slowly, over and over, she begins to convince them that every memory they have of the world above, it's all false. It doesn't exist. The sun, that's just them projecting what they see in a lamp. Their memory of Aslan, who Lewis uses to personify God in the form of a magnificent lion, that's just derived from a small house cat. And so she convinces them that those things are all a lie. It's not real because they can't see it. They're lulled into believing this lie slowly and over time as naturalism seeps in. And it tells them, if you can't see it, it can't be real. Even though what we can't see is the most real. This is why Paul tells us in Romans 8, 24 to 25, he says, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And then later, in Colossians 3, he says this, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. And so this is exactly what we're going to talk about today. Heaven, the reality of heaven. And the hope that I have after this is that we would spend a little bit more time each week thinking about and considering the reality of heaven, just like we did with our eyes closed, but this time without the blindfold on that we would see heaven a little bit more clearly. And this has the potential to change the way that we live every day, not just in the future, but today, day to day, and the relationships that we have, the things that we work on. So let me pray first and then we'll continue on. Dear Lord, thank you for the reality of heaven, the gift of heaven, the fact that um, you have called us by your son and the free gift of Jesus to be a part of that reality. And I pray, Lord, that as we um, talk this morning and as we leave today later, that we would see just a little bit more clearly without the blindfold, the reality of heaven that you've created. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Now, we've started to jump around in scripture a little bit, but we're going to spend more time in Revelation 21. We'll touch on 22 as well. So if you have your Bible or if you want to open up the app, you can follow along there. In this, this blindfold metaphor that we've started to talk about, the blindfold that prevents us from clearly seeing the beauty of what God's made, has layers. There are multiple layers to that blindfold. And so this morning, we're going to begin to peel these back. 
And there are three different shifts in our thinking, three ways that we've been blinded often to heaven that we're gonna unpack here. From where to who, from there to here, and then then to now. So let's start with this first one, from where to who. Heaven, very simply defined, is God with us. It's his presence. But we usually flip this around and we reverse this in our thinking about heaven and we make it about us with God. It only becomes somewhere, some other place that we're going, not someone. But heaven is more than a place, it's also a person. And so the question isn't just where are we going, but it's also who will we be with? So in Revelation 21.3, part of the second to the last chapter of the whole library of scripture and a chapter that is entirely focused on heaven, John says this, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And this I think is perhaps the most compelling reason that we don't long for heaven because we haven't yet experienced God's presence. I mean, the more you experience God with you, beside you, all around you, the more you crave that, the more you long for it. But it's really hard to long for somebody that you've never met before, that you've never spent time with. Now, there, there are a handful of moments in my life where I can say without a doubt that I have directly experienced God's presence. Now, of course, I know intellectually and in my head that this is a reality all the time, but something that is so unmistakably real on an experiential level. So one of those times, it was early in my career, I was working on a very early stage company and I was kind of trying to figure out, like, what is it that you have me here for, God? Like, why am I here? What's the point? What's my purpose? What are you calling me toward? So I was on a run out near a family farm that we have in Southern Illinois. It's out in farm country, so there was nobody around for miles. And it's beautiful country, woodlands, farmland. And as I'm running, I hear this, this voice say to me, you will lead, but you follow me. You will lead, but you follow me. Now it wasn't an audible voice in the sense that if you were running next to me that you would have heard it too. It was a unmistakable set of words that were clearly external outside of me that were placed inside my mind. And as I, I was running, I was letting that kind of roll around, echo in my mind. I was tempted to think like, Did, is that actually something that I heard? Like it's, it's kind of a strange thing. And so I was thinking, it can't be, right? So as I continue running, all of a sudden from across another field, a group of cattle come running up to the fence line and they fall in line, single file, one by one, running right beside me, just behind me, keeping pace, following me. And so this continued for about a quarter mile on my run until we got to another fence line and then they, they had to stop. And it was just this unmistakable presence, this validation that most definitely it was God's presence with me. And it's, it's a rather strange story to tell, but it is so clear and so distinct. And after that point, I wanted more of that. I longed for more experiences like that. Now, Jesus, he defines eternal life at one point, and he does it very precisely and very specifically. It's in John 17, 3, and he says, now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So Jesus is saying that eternal life is a matter of knowing God. So again, we're seeing heaven is a matter of who, not just where. It's a matter of presence and of knowledge, being with God and growing in our knowledge of him. The pastor and the author Dallas Willard puts it this way. He says of heaven, I am thoroughly convinced that God will let everyone into heaven who, in his considered opinion, can stand it. Because again, heaven isn't just somewhere, it's someone. It's about entering into the presence, a, a deeply relational nature of being with somebody, always living life with the Father and knowing him deeply. So heaven is deeply relational. 
So that's the first piece, from where to who. The second piece, there to here, helps us realize that heaven is also very much a place. It is a person, but it is also very much a physical, tangible reality. All of us were made as physical beings. And so the plan isn't that we one day float off as disembodied spirits, non-material beings. Rather, listen to this description of heaven, starting in Revelation 21.10. So it's a bit of a long passage, but we're going to read this all the way through. So starting in verse 10, And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high, and showed me the holy, the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurements and it was 144 cubits thick. It's a really thick wall. The wall was made of jasper, the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. So here, John lists out what he saw. The first foundation was jasper, and he goes on sapphire, agate, emerald, onyx, ruby, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, turquoise, jacinth, and amethyst. Now, we read all of that from John because notice just how wildly specific John is being in his revelation. So heaven is very much a place with measurements, materials, a physical reality. Now, there, there are two sub-layers to this that we can unpack. The first is this idea is that at, at the same time, heaven is both there, but it's also here. Because look at how John repeats later in the chapter. So in verse 10, what he was saying back in verse 1 through 2 as well, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So heaven is there in the sense of an intermediate heaven, a place that we go when we die to be with Christ until his return back to the earth. This is what Jesus referenced when he was dying on the cross and he turns to the thief and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus also said in John chapter 14, he says, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. So notice the spatial reality. I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. So his metaphor is a house that's located over there, a separate place where Jesus is going. But again, we see John saying about the end of times, coming down out of heaven from God, which means heaven isn't a separate place that always stays separate. It's something that is also coming here. It's part of the redemption of creation, or what John calls the new earth. And so the second piece here, this um, dual nature. Heaven on earth is referred to throughout Scripture as both a garden, but also a city. Now, this I think is pretty cool, so follow this here. If you recall from the very beginning of the story, rewind the epic series that we've been in all the way back. So heaven on earth, at first, God's presence with us is defined as a place in the garden, right? That's where Adam and Eve were walking with God, the Garden of Eden. Now, at the start of Revelation 22, this next chapter, the very last chapter in Scripture, it's titled Eden Restored. And the angel in John's revelation continues to show him around, and John says this, the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. So river, city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life 
bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So did you catch that? John's referencing both a river, but also the tree of life. Both are direct relations or references back to the garden. So if we rewind back to Genesis 2, here's what we read at the very start of this series. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye, good for food. In the middle of the garden were the trees of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it was separated into four headwaters. So the question is then, which is it? Is heaven more like a garden, or is it more like a city? Well, the short answer is both. And this is important because it gets to the idea that what we are experiencing now, all of creation around us, isn't something that will one day just get wiped away and that will be replaced as we go to live in some other location far out there. Listen to the way that the pastor and author John Mark Comer describes this in his book, Garden City. He says, you would think that if Jesus's agenda is to fix a world gone awry, then the story would end up back where it started, all of us naked, unashamed, living in the garden. But instead, it's a little different. Actually, it's a lot different. It's a garden-like city called New Jerusalem with walls and gates and streets and dwellings and arts and so on. So why is that? Because the garden was never supposed to stay a garden. It was always supposed to become a garden city. When you think of Eden, don't think of a public park with a lawn, a place at a flower bed. Think of a violent, untamed wilderness, teeming with beauty, but no infrastructure, roads, bridges, civilization. And God says, go make a world. So Adam, he wasn't the landscape maintenance employee. He was an explorer, a cartographer, a gardener, a designer, so on, a city maker. And this is good news because the story is God redeeming, not replacing the earth. And that's a really key point. It's redeeming, not replacing. Which means that to imagine heaven, you don't need to look very far. You just need to look around us. You need to picture, go back in your imagination, what all of this would be like without a fallen world, without sin in society. And so that means that the community that we're working in here in South Denver, the people we're building relationships with, the projects that we're doing, all of this, it matters deeply because it is directly shaping eternity. The work that we're doing right here and now matters because it's gonna be a part of Christ's return. So God's given us all a role to play in this, which brings us to the third layer of this blindfold that we, we get to peel back. And that's the shift from then, something that's in the future, to now, something that's right here. Because we shrink the gospel down when we only make it about the future. Now, it's not less than that, but it's also so much more. It's good news today. So think about it this way. What if the good news of the gospel isn't just about getting us into heaven in the future, but getting heaven into us right now? C.S. Lewis says it this way in Mere Christianity. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were exactly those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Now, there are two people who come to my mind when I read Lewis talking about this. Those people are Tyler and Emmy Lego. Now, if you know them, you know that they are generous, they're genuine, they're compassionate people. Stepping into their home is like stepping out of this world and into the next just for a second. But the reason why they truly come to mind is because of how frequently and naturally they bring God, knowing Jesus, into the center of everything, into their relationships, into their conversations, because they deeply want others to experience God's presence with them right now.
So if you, if you know Emmy, you know that she could walk into a grocery store or a park. Her first sentence will be, hi, I'm Emmy. And then the second one will be something like, I love Jesus. Would you like to love Jesus too? And it is totally natural, totally organic. As I've gotten to know and watch Tyler over the last five years, every major life decision that I've watched him walk through, choices about where to live, how to live, where to work, there's one question that comes front of mind for him, and it's, will this help more people meet Jesus? Because that's what he cares about, God's name, not his own. And again, if you get to know them, you will see this as clearly as the waters of the Caribbean. They're effective now because, as Lewis and as Paul was saying, their minds are set on the age to come, things above. Which is meaningful because, like we were just discussing about the reality of the Garden City, our work matters deeply here and right now. So N.T. Wright says this in his book, Simply Jesus. This is how Jesus puts his kingdom achievement into operation, through the humans he has rescued. It has been all too easy for us to suppose that if Jesus was king of the world, he'd do the whole thing by himself. But that was never his way, because it was never God's way. It wasn't how creation itself was supposed to work. Jesus' kingdom project, or heaven, then, is nothing if not the rescue and renewal of God's creation project, which is right here, all around us right now what we participate in. He also puts it this way, the point of the resurrection is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. There's something in the future. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present, so he, he lists this off, painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, anything. Everything that we do it will last into God's future. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. Now, one more excerpt. It's why Randy Alcorn in his book, it's titled Heaven, says, Earth is an in-between world. It's touched by both heaven and hell. Earth leads directly into heaven or directly into hell, affording us a choice between the two. The best of life on earth is a glimpse of heaven, while the worst of life is a glimpse of hell. For Christians, this present life, it's the closest that will come to hell. For non-believers, unbelievers, it's the closest that they will ever come to heaven. Which is exactly the call that we've been given now. You see, the point of heaven isn't about waiting for some place to go one day. It's about the role and the call that we've been given right now to help others meet Christ, to push back hell, to bring forward heaven into the experience and to the immediate here and now. And that's the gospel. That Jesus didn't just stay there waiting for the future to come. He's already stepped into time and space. He came so that we might know him, that we might abide in him. And this is exactly what Jesus references in John chapter 15 when he says, abide in me and I'll abide in you. Now, John Ortberg talks about this word, abide, as finding its root in where we spend our time. He says, when we abide, we make our home, our abode in a place. We linger there in our inner person Become, become shaped by our abode. We can abide in fear, we can abide in ambition, we can abide in anger, in lust, or we can abide, spend every moment right now with God. Now, Brother Lawrence, he was a 17th century monk, and he is perhaps the best example that I can think of this. I've read his book, The Practice of the Presence of God, multiple times now. It's very small, I'd highly recommend it. It's only about 80 pages. But in it, he describes his goal of spending every single moment of his life in what he calls conscious awareness of God, like literally every moment spent with God right here, right now. So he says, one way to recollect the mind easily in the time of prayer is to not let it wander too far in other times. You should keep it strictly in the presence of God, 
I make this my business all day long, not just during times of prayer. He says, at all times, every hour, every minute, even in the height of my business, I drive away from my mind everything that's capable of interrupting my thought of God, which is only made possible by the fact that Jesus, to unite us with God when we were separated by our own sin, took on that sin and the penalty for it on the cross so that we could be together. And that's the gift that we're, we're offered, and it's the reality of heaven. When we started this epic series, we left God's presence. Our choice to go our own way in the garden separated us. It drove us outside, east of Eden, as it's referenced. The Israelites, then, we see later in the story, are wandering around in the wilderness, and God speaks, and he makes them a promise. And he says this in Ezekiel 36:28. He says, you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people, and I will be your God. And this echoes exactly what we see John sharing, again, in Revelation 21. He says, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And this has been the plan all along. It's God with us. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to join the story that God has been writing since the beginning of history. Lewis puts it this way, all your life in unattainable ecstasy has hovered just beyond the grasp of your consciousness. The day is coming when you will wake to find beyond all hope that you have attained it or else that it was within your reach and you have lost it forever. Which means that we have a choice. We can choose to continue to live and write our own story. We can go our own way. Or we can choose to become a part of God's story, to accept his invitation that was extended to us through Jesus to join the story of the world. And as you consider that choice, that invitation that you have of whether or not you would like to join God's story, Remember that heaven isn't some place that we can't know anything about, that's coming in the future, that's someplace else. Like Lewis says, we don't have to live in an underground world. We don't live in darkness with a blindfold on us. We can see heaven more clearly. We can picture it. It's something we're already seeing glimpses of today in the people and the relationships around us and the projects and the gardening work that we're doing as we're building a city and building the kingdom. Because the truth of the story of both the gospel and the reality of heaven is this. Heaven is both there, but it's also right here. Heaven is both coming then, it's also right now. Heaven is unimaginable joy found living life with God. So if we start to peel back the blindfold layer by layer and we begin to look for it, there are moments in our lives, cattle on a run, the birth of a child, a neighbor who opens up their home to us, where we can see the light of heaven shining into our lives brightly increasing until that final day where in Revelation 22, it says this, they will see his face. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. That's the reality of heaven and that's the good news. It's the invitation and it's the choice that we get to make. Let me, let me pray for us um, and then we'll continue on in our service. Dear Lord, thank you uh, just for the reality and the gift of heaven, the fact that it's something that you have told us clearly about through the revelation that you gave to John, through the scripture that we have now. Thank you for the gift. And I pray, Lord, that as we continue, as we worship, that this week we would experience you more clearly, more directly, and that we would see you without the blindfold on and the reality of heaven that you've gifted to us. Thank you, Lord. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.